Well, good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jill, and these are Jill's Journals Out Loud. I am recording this early on Thursday, April 13th. And as usual, the dogs were totally quiet. And the minute I hit record, they're waking up. So we're going to start with just a deep breath. Remembering the important thing is to get that air deep into your lungs and exhale uh, to inhale through your nose, you can exhale through your mouth or your nose, whichever is easier for you. But to really get that air circulating, because today, as you could see from the title, we are talking about fear. So I want to do two things. One, I'm going to do a podcast with you. And two, I put a link to a podcast and then a short video about who the podcast is about. And for those of you who are maybe new and the first time listening, uh, my real focus is what I call wired for danger, meaning that your primary nervous system default of fight, flight, freeze in the face of great fear as danger, not just fear, fear as danger, meaning life-threatening, is fight. You move into danger uh, it does not mean that you don't have the other three uh, nervous system responses, right? Stress responses. And so uh, the reason I linked that particular podcast is, one, I don't have the capacity to do interviews, so we'll pretend like I would be able to interview these guys. Two, it's always good to listen to somebody else's perspective. And three, uh, Alex Honold, Honold, however you say his name, he's a uh, not so young anymore, but he's a young man who was the first one to free solo climb. Uh, I think it's El Capitan in Yosemite. I have actually been there. I did not climb it. He is a guy who is known for not having uh, or being able to face incredible amounts of fear. And for those of you who aren't familiar with free solo is when you rock climb, uh, normally, when you're going up the face of a mountain, you have all the the informa- all the equipment and the tools and things like that to uh, create some sense of safety. So if you fall, you know you put the I don't I don't climb, so I don't know the terminology. You put the thingies in the wall, and you have a rope. Uh, and so if you fall, you uh, don't die. And uh, when I was thinking about, you know, my own kind of processes and what I've been having, this has been a big, I've been having a lot of issues thinking, uh, sort of, I'm in one of those periods where lots of stuff is happening that I can't really talk about cause it's just in my head. But, uh, but I really liken it to mountain climbing cause it's almost all, uphill and it's not something anybody else will ever understand unless you're just one of these weird tiny percentage of people who sit around and do this kind of thing. Although my climbing is mental, emotional, and spiritual, his climbing is physical, but they both have a mental and emotional component to it. And then one of the things that I, uh, they had a movie about him. I couldn't find the trailer for that, but it is available to rent or buy and watch. Uh, uh, documenting his free solo climb is that uh, they did a, a scan of his brain saying that he had his amygdala was less responsive to fear. And so they talk about that in this podcast. And to me, what was so interesting about this is both of them have a very different perspective on why the results of that test came the way up the way they do. Uh, he talks a lot about different kinds of fears. And 
uh, as I was listening, it occurred to me how, you know, you can have the same piece of information and depending where you are in your own personal experience, with your own professional experience, uh, with the amount of time that's gone by. You know, we believe one thing at 20, one at 30, one at 40, right? That the world keeps changing and we keep having more experiences and more things to learn is that I had a very different response to the information than the two of them. So it's always good to have different perspectives about why and how people are sharing information. But what I encourage you to do is to, to, as you listen, I hope you listen, it's really interesting, is that if you replace all the cognitive, uh, mental, uh, 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 psychological, uh, diagnostic, naming criteria information with just this, what I've been talking to you about, this push-pull process, push-pull-pause process, right? Push-fight, pull-flight, pause-freeze. If we strip away all of the labeling and the explanations and all that kind of stuff, everything can be reduced and down into these three processes. And why that's so important is we attach meaning when we explain things, but it doesn't necessarily change anything. I think one of the biggest aha moments I had as a social worker and a therapist was when statistically, you, I they figured out, uh, and I guess it's true, you know how that goes, but um, that you did not have to understand why you were depressed in order to recover from your depression. And that sort of was like a light bulb because I grew up uh, in a family my mom was a therapist and social worker. So I grew up, you know, with all the, the mental health language and processes around that. And I have an overwhelming need to understand why. I mean, decades later, I still am battling. I need to know why. And some people have a strong, I need to know why, and some people don't. But what's really important is that Knowing why doesn't necessarily change anything unless it serves as enough of a uh, impetus to create the, the change. Change is the step after. It doesn't. Knowing why doesn't create the change itself. Uh, and that's really, really important as you are looking at your own personal issues. And so when we can remove the labels and we just reduce everything down to its simplest form, secret of the universe there, is that you can really begin to manage it in a different way. And I think that becomes most apparent when he is talking about you know, death-defying climbing, which is very, you know, planned. It's not just, you know, oh, I'm bored, I'm going to run up the mountain, uh, versus his tremendous amount of fear response into public speaking. And to me, this is the perfect differentiation from Wired for Danger. He is able to face his fear of death without much thinking about it. It's kind of a trivial component. But yet his public speaking, which is really fear of being embarrassed, of public humiliation, he describes it as a fear pushing, right, resistance. I don't want to study. I don't want to get up on stage. And eventually he gets more comfortable with that. But it really is a running away. It's really a pull response. The resistance to wanting to do something is the moving away. Now he pushes forward and does it, but that speaks to his capacity to push, not pushing at the fear itself. Uh, 
And something like public humiliation versus death, you know, by falling, I don't know how tall El Capitan is, but, you know, even falling 10 feet from the air is scary. Uh, Falling versus humiliation, falling to your death versus humiliation, two very wildly different things. One is actual danger, and the other is no danger. Public humiliation is not danger. Uh, And, you know, one of the, I was listening to uh, or watching an interview with Michael Yawn, who I've talked about, who is like the the consummate personality type of Wired for Danger. He's an investigative reporter. He's been a Green Beret. He's down uh, in the Garyan Gap. He travels all over the world. He goes into conflict. But he was doing a, uh, an interview with someone who, uh, it was a live stream. Oh, it, they were recording it live stream. It wasn't actually live, but he thought it was live. And so he was like, oh, I'm going to go walk into the... Uh, the migrant camp, because the, the interview was about how, which is just horrifying in and of itself, but it's how they are uh, increasing the capacity of these camps to funnel people into America. The, the Darien Gap is, a, is considered a 30-mile you know, uh, jungle that's the most dangerous in the world, although I don't know anymore. But anyways, but he was just, you know, he was totally okay with walking in there and, you know, he's like, okay, let's just see what was happening. There was no fear on his part. The person doing the interview was like, well, be careful. Well, don't put yourself at risk. We'll stay safe. And I was laughing because so many people say things like just stay safe. And he was like, oh, it's whatever. It'll be fine. And I was thinking how that's one of the great uh, dividers when you know you're more wired for danger than not because you never say the words just I hope you'll be careful I hope you'll be safe that's not even in your vocabulary because you don't think that way you may think this is stupid I'm going to die but I'm going to do it anyways but you never say stuff like oh well you know just be safe be careful uh that's just not a natural response for a wire for danger person, but almost everybody always says that. Well, be careful, be safe. You know, don't don't uh, take any risks. And those of us who are wired this way, we just don't have that language. So I thought that was a really interesting example of of how you know the guy in his safe little studio back in the states is who likes to see himself as a real tough guy. Uh, we say, well, well, be careful, don't do anything risky. But the guy who's really the wire for danger guy is out in the middle of nowhere, you know, just, oh, well, it'll be fine, right? So uh, there, there is who we think we are, and there is how we are wired. And the same way as you're listening to the interviewer, uh, the guy who's an organizational psychologist interviewing uh, the free solo climber, uh, they have very different interpretations of what is risky behavior and how far they will push into the danger. Uh, And if you are wired for danger, you push into the danger, even though you know it's not the smartest thing to do. But as you're listening to him, it just has to be done. You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep challenging. You have to keep seeking mastery in these areas because it's just who you are. And it's something other people just don't understand. So I wanted to give you that uh, to listen to because I think it's a really important discussion about fear. Because as I've been thrashing around with my own stuff, uh, you know, the thing that I sort of came to the conclusion of this morning is 
that in this particular moment in time, there is so much to be afraid of because there's just incredible amounts of insecurity. And, you know, the worst part is, is there's almost no way to get a handle on it. I was uh, reading different things about the money situation because the conversation in the news is the dollar is going, the dollar is going, and the dollar is going. And there are so many different opinions on when and how the dollar is going away. And if you look at the statistical numbers, there is no sustainability to the path we're on, period. So it really isn't a question of if. Now it becomes a question of when, and when makes a huge difference in terms of uh, decision making, right? If it's tomorrow, you know, you don't like, well, and for me, you know, I'm getting ready to, to drive away and try to find a new place to live, right? But again, separated from all my survival stuff that I've just spent the last few days repacking, oh my God, I hate all my stuff so bad. But I have all this stuff and I don't want to let it go because if the dollar goes away and I can't buy food anymore, I need my food, I need my tools, I need my clothes, right? I'm having all these same fears that we're all having. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm, these are all my preparations, but I'm desperate to purge. What can I get rid of? What can I get rid of? What can I get rid of? And uh, as usual, I got rid of some stuff, but I really couldn't make myself get rid of food because, the dollar may crash, we may have no food. So it, it's an extremely, extremely stressful point in time. Now, before I go forward on this statement that I really want to focus on around fear, I want to talk about the spiritual part of this. And one of the things that you may hear, if you're a spiritual student at all, is that everything is love or fear. That's, some, that's one of those uh, things that people throw out to, to think that they're wise because they've just heard that recently or they think that that's the answer to everything. And as if you listen to me, I just said secret of the universe. And that is one of the secrets of the universe. Everything reduces down into love and fear. Doesn't mean crap on a day-to-day -day basis because there's so many things happening. It's very difficult us, for us to understand how the simplicity of that could make any sense. But if you really want to be, you know, a spiritual seeker, uh, you know, the goal is how do we keep putting everything under the umbrella of these two very simple processes? Uh, and so one, one of the things to me that's very interesting about fear is that it kicks up in different places, right? So it kicks up in our survival, right? We're afraid we won't survive. And that fear hurts. That's falling off the wall. That's dying. That's bouncing around on the boulders and breaking every bone. Uh, we have mental fear and emotional fear. That's standing up in front of people and being publicly humiliated, which, you know, piece of cake to me compared to uh, breaking bones on boulders, right? And then we have spiritual fear because we're talking more, or people are talking more and more about spiritual warfare, about uh, Satan and the occult and, uh, you know, the things in the ethers coming forward. And there's a much broader conversation about spirituality as a force, not just an idea of la, la, love, right? God is love, la, 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 right? Versus 
these things that are happening and that have happened in the past that we assumed were mythological or metaphoric, you know, there's uh, quite a large or growing awareness that maybe some of these things weren't uh, myth, myth or metaphor, but were real and they were just recorded accurately. And I always make the joke that I really want to see a giant, I figure, until I actually see a giant. But it is uh, fascinating to think about being able to see things out in the world that we always thought were a myth and terrifying. Uh, And especially because the spiritual feels wildly out of our control. There's a lot of fear about what can be done to us without our permission or the the forces of the gods or demons or disembodied spirits or all this other stuff. So there's a lot of fear out in the world right now. And uh, so I was just thinking about what is my number one issue with all of this? Because uh, there's just so much uncertainty. Uh, And I, I think for myself, you'll have to answer this for yourself. What is your biggest issue regarding everything that's happening out in the world today? Uh, How to face it? Because we've had this idea up until this moment in time where we could prepare enough for what's coming down the pike. And if you've listened to me long enough, you know I kind of poo-poo on that whole thing because there's no way to prepare 100%. And you don't even know which version. You know, some places will go forward and they'll have almost no impact, right? And other places will have, you know, all the gates of hell. And they are right now, you know, coming open. And so... Uh, and I I also had talked about in the past, you know, when you get one of those, I think it was James Wesley Rawls had the survival handbook, and he had list after list after list of everything you would need for every kind of potential disaster. And I'm laughing because I'm like, number one, most of us can't buy all that stuff. And number two, where would you put it all? And number three, there's no way you're going to be able to walk away with it because, of people, if we have a great big thing happen, if we have a EMP, uh, if we have bombs, if we have a great big thing happen, 90% of the people are going to become into refugee status. We're going to have to walk away. And most likely at some point, it's only going to be what you can carry. Uh, Nobody wants to know that as a real thing, but statistically, globally, historically, it's a thing. And if you look at migrants, if you look at who's moving through the Darien Gap, who's at the border, who's being picked up, they only have with them what they can carry. Now, they're also being provided for, which is not normal. They have money in a bank card money. They have phone money given to them, and they have Uh, beds and shelters and transport and all this other stuff uh, organized for them. And that's not a normal migration process. This is an organized migration process. But in a real migration process, you know, there's like now, there's always people who are willing to take advantage of you, to steal from you, uh, etc. But what they all have in common is it's only what 
they can carry. Now, that is just mostly mentally and emotionally unfathomable for most of us who are settled like I am in my trailer with my 800 million pounds of stuff. Getting ready to drive away from it again, what do I take with me? And so uh, we don't really think that way. We think if we've bought enough stuff, we will be safe, right? I love listening to these people talk about survival as if they've actually been in any kind of real survival situation. And, you know, one of my big complaints, I'll just throw this in here with the military, is that, yeah, you have been trained in survival, but you also have the world's biggest support system. You know, for every active fighter, there's like six to eight support people. And so, Uh, You know, they get you your clothes, they get you your food, they get you your transportation, they pick you up, they give you medical care. I mean, there's there's a few guys that have to run out and are kind of on their own in the woods, so to speak. But the majority of the military has this huge support system with it. That is not real life. There will be no 911. So there is a lot of fear and uncertainty as people are losing jobs and they're losing homes and, you know, the car loan app. Loans are being, uh, you know, defaulting. I mean, there's just a lot coming down the pike. And and I think, you know, the biggest issues are not, you know, who it's happening to, all of us, why it's happening or where it's happening, because that's kind of like everyone everywhere. And uh, most people are kind of waking up to the organizational systems creating all of this. Uh, but what is going to happen to us? When is it going to happen to us? And how is it going to happen to us? That's going to be different for everybody. And it's the one thing, those are the things we can't control. And so I was thinking about this, like, what is my big number one issue and how to move forward with all of this? Uh, And as a wired for danger person, it's one thing to talk about charging into the danger itself, but the fear is so much of the is uncertain it isn't something that you can always just fight your way through or you're going to respond as a fight person because sometimes you just have to run away or shut down or hide out or take a break or move or you know there's just so many other things happening and so uh, I was trying to think what is most important to me to not get lost in all the fear that I feel about the future, the uncertainty about not knowing what the future is. And the worst part for me is the amount of suffering, not just for me, but everyone else, the animals, uh, the children, the frail, just everybody who's going to be increasingly suffering. Uh, You know, one of the reasons I want to get away from here is there's so many animals that are just so poorly treated and hungry and starving and that's just more crap going on than you can fix like there's no uh, well that's how I ended up with the second boy dog right he was totally underfed I keep now I'm making the joke because uh, me the two girls me and the girl dog uh, have extra padding and he's still so skinny no matter how much I feed him he's the only one that could use some extra padding so we're more prepared for the famine than he is but uh, it's terrible. It's terrible, you know, seeing their little bones sticking out everywhere. So 
to me, the hardest part is looking at the suffering that's happening. And so what is it that I want? And for me, I kind of settled on these. And this is a good journal question. What is it that you most want to focus on or think about in terms of how to move forward with the a massive amount of certain uncertainty that, you know, it's usually, we're at a point now, like the more you learn about what's going on, the scarier it is to know about what's going to happen possibly here in the near future. So my things were I want to be able to stay focused because I'm having a lot of trouble with that. I want to keep faith. I don't want to let myself continuously, you know, be in the dumps about all this. And most importantly, I want to still function and not shut down. And uh, shutting down is a fear response. It's a stress response. It's that freeze. It's that overwhelm. And sometimes that's important. Sometimes like if you're injured, it's important to shut down and just, uh, you know, retreat. There was an interesting uh, theory I saw one time about the function of depression. I talked about that recently, really was in our uh, running in the wild days, right? Our try our uh, jungle days when we were just uh, hunter-gatherers is the purpose of depression was to get us to shut down, to take a pause because, you know, loss is real. Uh, animals grieve, you know, there's just p- loss is a real feeling and grief is a real feeling and sadness is a real feeling. Uh, but it makes you less functional. It makes you dangerous. It makes you risky for anybody moving around with you because you're not really operating at full capacity. You're in the midst of a grief response. You're not going to have good situational awareness. And so the function of depression, meaning uh, pause, meaning everything's kind of slowed down, uh, meaning you don't really want to get up and go out and take care of business, was you needed that time to process the emotional reaction, which really, you know, grief and loss is like an energy vacuum. It's a loss. It's an emptying. It takes, you know, they say nature abhors a vacuum. It takes time for that gap in your energy, losing someone, losing something, uh, you know, it takes time for that to fill back up. And that's the purpose of the depression was to keep you still so you would stay safe and not be danger to self or others. Makes perfect sense. So, uh, but it can also work to your detriment. You can get lost in it. And sometimes we don't have the luxury of just shutting down. So it has to be evaluated. But Uh, So there's times when you need to shut down and there's times when you need to recognize you are shutting down. And the reality is that it's very difficult in the world today with the amount of information being hammered at us, with everybody having an opinion, everybody thinking they know what they're talking about, everybody thinks they're right, everybody's screaming. Of course, no one's barely doing anything. So uh, the best way out of massive shutting down at a time when you must function is to start with radically tiny steps. Just, you know, that's one of the reasons I have dogs is that it they I keep them on a schedule to keep me on a schedule to keep me functioning when I don't want to. And I also do that because my brain needs that structure. But 
the answer to overwhelm and shutting down is to, to move into the world's tiniest little micro steps. And it's also the power of routine, especially with children and animals. So if you have access to children and animals, routine, 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 it's so important for them. But in crisis, it's also important for you when you want to shut down, but you can't. You have to function. Now, if you're functioning and you see somebody shutting down, one of the best things you can do is give them tiny tasks to do. Go get water. Give that person a blanket. Uh, here, move this from X to Y. Go give this message. Uh, go take the dog for a walk. Go get the children some toys. Go brush the children's hair. Whatever you can do to help people get tiny little steps of movement, not mental steps, not emotional steps, tiny physical steps. No, Don't ask people to make decisions. Don't make decisions when you're in overwhelm or shut down. Oh, damn dogs are waking up, going crazy. So if you are functioning and people around you are not functioning, give them tiny, physical, non-thinking, non-emotional processes to complete. Okay. It's hard for me to focus uh, when they start moving around. And he's got this weird breathing thing he's doing. You might be hearing that where he can't breathe. Just there it goes. More fabulousness. Okay. The second thing I want to still function is I want us to have faith. And that is, oh my God. And faith, uh, if you have a biblical quote of faith, love, and hope, uh, faith and hope to me are kind of the same thing, but faith really kind of goes with function and focus for me. It's you just keep moving forward and you have the faith, even though you can't see the outcome, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You don't shut down or let it get overwhelmed. Uh, and that's what I would like because I'm feeling overwhelmed. And the last is focus. Focus for me is a nightmare because I have focus issues on a good day. But when there's seven trillion things that need to be done oh crap sorry seven trillion things that need to be done it's very difficult for me to focus on what's that one thing that must be done uh, if you have an ADHD brain you are on fire it's easy to have focus in a crisis it's horrific to have focus when you are overwhelmed with too many little things that need to be done so if you are a flight or freeze person, one of the best things you can do for someone who is not able to focus because it's not a crisis is to give them little things to do, little physical things to, to do, little tiny tasks that can be completed, not abstractions and not long-term planning. But short, go clean out that drawer. Go move the groceries from the table to the pantry. Uh, go chop wood, right? So if you're if you're danger person or you're ADHD person or someone's having trouble with focus, short physical tasks, okay? Uh, and it's very difficult to prioritize the what, when, and how when we have no idea what's coming down the pike, right? I mean, that's the conversation I'm having. 
really good time to get in the car and drive away, right? When we're on the brink of war, we're on the brink of dollar collapse. But then what if we're not, right? So there's no way to make decisions in the midst of times of terrible fear and uncertainty and suffering, knowing that you're making the right decision, because that has to be faith. Uh, Focus when you don't know what the most important thing to focus on is, Uh, And then still functioning. So uh, this is what my biggest issue is right now in these times of radical uncertainty. Uh, You know, the title itself was, you know, is fear, nature, nurture, grit, or training? Can you train yourself out of being afraid? When you're in times like now where the uncertainty and the fear are overwhelming, you know, people will shut down because they can't know anymore. Like, I don't want to know anymore because I can't handle it. You have people like that. We're all in a different place in the continuum about how much we want to know, how much we need to know. Uh, We do have a basic response as nature. And to me, that's that wired for danger component. But we also have nurture, which is the epigenetics. What gets turned on and what gets turned off? We do all have grit. You know, sometimes what's fascinating is that people will rise to the occasion that you never thought would. I think the greatest tragedy is that we have uh, created this image, cultural myth of a fight response as a big, physically strong, tough guy. Nothing could be further from the truth. A lot of people who look physically strong, if you get them in the face of actual danger, they will fall apart. So muscles and equipment and even training a lot of times isn't enough. You're pretty much either wired for it or not, but you can train yourself to be more responsive to it. Uh, And a lot of us are just going to not know until the time happens. And that is very uncomfortable. So I wanted to talk about fear in this way, because uh, I cannot think of any, uh, I mean, you know, I can blow smoke, right? I can tell you, I think that I'm smart, and I'm right, and everyone should listen to me. And that will make people who are followers feel better, right? Like if you are a leader and you tell your following that everything's going to be okay. I used to do that when I was in the the hospital because uh, a lot of times, most of the time, you know, I like to work when everybody else was gone. So I'd be the only social worker in the whole hospital, which sometimes was like really, you know, 600, 800 beds. So there were a lot of people and they would call me when they didn't know what to do. And I learned that it wasn't important for me to tell them this is the right thing to do. What was important was for them to think I knew what the right thing to do was. And what I learned is a lot of times I did not have the answer, but I would tell them I would take care of it, which would make them feel better. And then when I couldn't solve the problem, I would just say, okay, to myself, I don't know what to do. And usually within 24 hours, the problem would find a resolution with or without my input. But in the moment, people felt better when they thought I knew knew what I was doing. I learned what was important was to not solve the problem was was to because the problem always resolved one way or the other, but was to let other people feel relief, pressure, right? Relieve the pressure by I was taking care of it. And so uh, I could blow smoke and tell you everything's going to be okay. But I really think that this is a 
insane moment that's only at the very beginning. And we're all going to have wildly different experiences with it because of our the where we are in the world, uh, what our personal situation is. Uh, all these things are extremely individual. So there's no singular answer that will tell you that, okay, if you do this, you will be safe. Like you can be James Wesley Rawls and you can have every single thing on the list in your wildly safe and structured and protected uh, hi- bug out, hideout place, right? And a satellite could fall and uh, wipe it all out or a volcano could go off and uh, you have ash everywhere. I mean, there's just no way to prepare for everything. So this is a time of unimaginable uncertainty. So we can always breathe, we can ground, and we can journal. Those are my most important things. But We can also prepare by understanding what is most important to us in times of fear. So that's really the journaling question is if you want to move forward in a way that's not just physically, what can I do, but the mental, emotional, and spiritual components of preparation, what is most important to you in these times of great uncertainty? And for me, uh, I'm really choosing focused faith and function. You know, I always like to do that alliteration with the same letter in front. So now the dogs have moved into a point where I actually have to do something. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I hope you enjoy that other podcast. I highly recommend it. Uh, really interesting guy because how many of us want to free solo up the sides of mountains? But deep breath, my friends, and I will see you next time.